pain, and we need to hear it over and over again. And we're going to hear from the king this morning, Mark chapter 1. And as we turn to God's word, would you guys pray this prayer with me, reading the underlined portions together? Lord God, we wish to see Jesus. By your Spirit's power, give us eyes to see his glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, inevitably, when a new regime takes over, what they often begin doing is they often begin by starting to exert their power and authority. They start to see its extent and its power by working it out in their kingdom. This happens with new presidents in the U.S. A new administration takes over and they start administering. Often one of the first acts of any new presidency is to start to quickly give new executive orders, which could overturn executive orders of the last president or start their own agenda. They, they push their political agenda, their, power, their party's political agenda. They start exerting and extending some of their authority, their political authority. When kings and kingdoms would come and conquer other kingdoms, what they would do is they'd start putting their flag up. You don't have a flag anymore. You belong to us. You're going to fly our flag. Or they'll collect taxes or they'll change the language. All these things have been done. And indeed, in, in even the Gospels, the, the context there, that would have been done to them. They would have known the power and exertion of kingdom authority. Well, Jesus went through the waters, and he goes to the wilderness, and then he goes out announcing that a kingdom is at hand. It's the kingdom of God, and it's near, and it's at hand in the person of Jesus Christ. And like other kings and other kingdoms and other places of authority, he begins his kingdom ministry by exerting his authority. But his exerting his authority is very unlike other kings and other kingdoms. His authority is not seen in him making new laws or writing executive orders. His authority is not seen in military might. He, he doesn't hold a rally in the nearest capital to start getting support. He doesn't have some sort of great crowning inauguration. Jesus begins his kingdom ministry by going to a Galilean town where he teaches, where he heals, and where he prays. And Mark is going to show us the authority, the power of this king and this kingdom, primarily through Jesus' working, his teaching, his healing, his exercising of demons. But he's also going to show us his power through his kingdom living, living life under the rule of his father. So Jesus didn't come with his kingdom and start flexing his arm, the arm of his authority and power like most kings and most kingdoms, because he's not like most kings. He's very unlike most kings, and his kingdom is very different. But what he does do in extending his authority and power in his kingdom ministry leaves all of those who would really genuinely peer into his life and his work questioning, as the crowd questions here, what is this? So Jesus begins his ministry, and here's a map. He begins in Capernaum. It's close to the Sea of Galilee. You see it up there. Real close to the sea, that's probably where some of these disciples are from. He begins his ministry here. It becomes kind of a base of operations, a center of of a lot of his teaching and work. He begins there, and he begins now with, he has four disciples with him, so they're five strong. And in verse 21, here's what it says, that they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Immediately. This is another word that, that Mark has used over and over again. It's one of his favorite words, and we need to remind ourselves that immediately is is probably not what we think. When we think of the word immediately, we think it means instantaneously, because that's what it means to us. But immediately for Mark is a loose chronological term, right? It's loosely chronological. 
he primarily uses it to just move the narrative along. He's just kind of moving things along in the story. He's not always saying that instantaneously this is what happens. We know that this is true because we think of the context. We only have one way to think of it, but Mark is thinking of a word that moves the narrative along, and he's saying, let's let the context show you what this word will do. And most of the time, it's moving the narrative along. We, we know that it's not strictly chronological. Mark doesn't arrange his gospel chronologically. Some of it's chronological, but that's not his primary concern. His primary concern is showing us the personal work of Jesus. In fact, most of the gospel of Mark is uh, arranged around geography. So it's a lot more geographically arranged than chronologically arranged. And so he says, well, immediately he goes into Capernaum, and on the Sabbath, here's what he's doing. He's teaching. And in verse 22, it says that they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. Jesus is unlike other kings, and his kingdom is like other kingdoms, and he teaches like unlike anybody else, anybody that they've ever heard before in this crowd. He's unlike all of them, is that he teaches as one who has authority. Now, there's a few of us that play basketball on Friday mornings, and i got to say, you know, like if we put a team together, I think we'd be pretty formidable. We've got some good players in our midst. But there was one week when I was sitting on the sideline and watching some players play, and uh, I hadn't noticed anything particular, anything different about any of the players, but then as I watched the game, I, I start to take notice of one player, as he just started systematically demolishing everybody else and scoring every time down the court. Shooting where he wanted, when he wanted to, passing around people, dribbling around, whatever he wanted to do, he was doing it. Like, well, that guy, that's different. You know, like, he looks like us. He's about our height. I didn't suspect that this guy was going to demolish us, but he just started dismantling us. Turns out this is a former NCAA player. Played professional basketball for several years. So in other words, what we had on the court there was we have some, some people that play basketball and are pretty good. And we had a basketball player. Like, there was a distinct difference. Jesus isn't just another teacher in Galilee. He teaches and they're astonished because he's not just another teacher. He's the authoritative teacher. And Mark emphasizes Jesus' authority in a really interesting way here. Because he doesn't give us any content of what he teaches. Did Jesus open up the scroll of Isaiah? Did he turn to Deuteronomy and start talking about the law? We don't, we don't know. We don't get any of that. No, Mark doesn't do that. Mark focuses on the content of the person of Jesus, not primarily on the content of his teaching. And so what Mark is going to do in his gospel is he's going to give us way less of the content of Jesus' teaching than the other gospels. Luke and Matthew spend long periods, and John spend long periods of time in long teaching narratives. You see sermons on the mount, sermon on the plain, all those things are in these other gospels. Mark doesn't give us a ton of that. He focuses primarily on Jesus' identity, and he's starting to show us his authority, not by giving the content of his teaching, but by showing us the content of this person. He's trying to say, who's this Jesus? Who is he? What's he like? What's his character? And what did he do? And so that's how he goes about showing us his identity. In other words, I think Mark is trying to accomplish something for his original audience. He is aiming something for them, something crucial for them. And it wasn't specifically the content of his teaching. It's not that he's ignoring that, but he wants them to focus in on the content of Jesus himself. He wants them to see the identity and the unique identity of Jesus. See, Mark knew it's Jesus, who he is, that that saves. We have to know who Jesus is 
to be saved. And in first century, when, they're, when he's writing these words, they would have to know who Jesus is in order to be sustained, in order to persevere in their lives. With persecution and things rising and falling all around them, they're going to need to know who Jesus is in order to persevere. And knowing who Jesus is is no less crucial in our day. As we try to follow Jesus, and we try to find our identity in him, we need to know who he is. We need to know what he does, what he's like, and how he shows his identity. We have to know him. And Jesus shows us who he's like, what he's like, and who he is. Mark wants us to know what those people in the synagogue knew, not just the content of his teaching. He wants us to be awed at the person of Jesus. It wasn't his appearance that amazed them. It wasn't his might It wasn't even specifically what he said. It was how he said it. He said it as one who had authority, unlike all the other teachers they'd heard before. This is authority that's compelling, compelling authority to them, authority that moves here to decisions so that when he can say to somebody, follow me, somehow they're like compelled to just take up everything and follow him. It's authority that leaves people astonished. Maybe they experience what the the disciples experienced on the road to Emmaus as they talked to Jesus, not knowing who it was, and their hearts, they said, were burning inside them. Or maybe they experienced like the disciples in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. They started thinking like, what kind of man is this? That seems to be the atmosphere here. They're wondering like, who is this and how does he teach with such authority? It's a compelling authority that leaves them astonished. And yet, my guess is that their astonishment would not have led them to guess what would have come next. In verse 23, we read, Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. A man with an unclean spirit runs into the synagogue, crying out. Like That sounds like a recipe for chaos, confusion, Extreme disruption. Like we have people in place to stop that from happening. <laughs> and if it does happen, it comes in here. Like I've got, I'm going to like point to one of the other pastors. Like you're, you're on this one, right? But actually what this demon does here, this unclean spirit does here, is it brings clarity to the situation. Hey, the crowd's astonished of Jesus and his teaching, but they're unclear on the identity of Jesus. Like they, they know he teaches as one who has authority, but they don't know the reach of that authority. And in walks an unclean spirit, so that they and we, years later, get to see the authority of the Son of God on display because of that unclean spirit. It's interesting and amazing how God is using all things so that we might magnify the Son. This spirit brings clarity in that he immediately recognizes his context, and it's not a peaceful one. He walks into a room where the Son of God is, and he understands we're not at peace. There's no peace time here. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. That kingdom is on a collision course with any competing claims of authority. And while everyone in the synagogue wonders why Jesus teaches so differently, in steps an unclean spirit, and this spirit gets it. He gets that they're not at peacetime, that this is a context of war, that a collision is about to happen, a collision of kingdoms, and it takes place right here. So much so that he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And so the unclean spirit knows there's no neutrality here. There's no peace here. 
There's no truce between kingdoms here. It's one kingdom versus another kingdom. It's the kingdom of this demon and Jesus' kingdom. And when standing face to face with this unclean spirit, or when standing face to face with Jesus, this unclean spirit recognizes Jesus and I are not okay. We're not on the same team. I wonder if we'd ever acknowledge the same thing. Now, the world where Jesus is okay with everything and everyone doesn't exist. The world where Jesus is okay with everyone and everything doesn't exist. It will exist. Jesus says he's going to bring about. One day he's going to reconcile unto himself all things. Brother, through his redeeming love or in judgment, everything will be reconciled to him. But there is no neutrality now, and that time is not now. And while we might think that we don't oppose Jesus, we need to ask the question, does Jesus oppose us? Because all of us are born sinners. The scripture tells us that we are enemies of God. We oppose God. That's our natural condition. And then he comes proclaiming, my kingdom is at hand, and he orders everybody, repent and believe. Turn from your kingdom, your way, to mine. Believe in me. And that's actually really good news. Because as he pronounces the kingdom of God, he's saying, my kingdom is on a collision course with any claims of authority, whether that be your own or somebody else's. And you need to turn from it. His announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand, as we learned last week, is an indictment on us and on our kingdom and on our natural inclinations to turn against him. It's an indictment on our selfish, sinful state. But it's also an invitation. He tells us that his kingdom is at hand so that we might repent and believe in him. We get the grace of coming face to face with Jesus in his word first. Being called and invited to repent and believe now. All of us must do this. We must repent and believe because we are all born outside of neutrality. We are not neutral. We oppose the king of kings. And he invites us to repent and join his kingdom now before we meet him face to face. Where to some he'll say, come and inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you. And to some he will say, depart from me. But there will be no neutrality there. There's new neutrality when we face him in his word. He tells us where we're at. And we need to recognize the context, like this unclean spirit who runs into Jesus, so that we too wouldn't have to be able to repeat in fear, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? He is confronting us now that we might repent and believe. And seeing this Jesus, this son of God, puts this demon in defensive mode. What have you got to do with us? It also puts him in terror. Have you come to destroy us? He not only rightly identifies the context of war, but he also rightly identifies the expected outcome of this war. Have you come to destroy us? Isn't that now? It could also be taken as a statement, you've come to destroy us. And he expects this outcome because he knows who Jesus is. He looks at him and what does he say? And this is the Holy One of God. He knows. He knows the context. He knows the identity of Jesus. And he says all of these things even before Jesus casts him out. And that's what Jesus does. He tells him to be quiet and he casts him out. And Jesus doesn't do this using an infinity stone. He doesn't have a magic spell. He doesn't pick up a wand. What does he use? His words. He commands it. He uses his mouth. He uses words. He says, you're done. And here's what it leads to. Verse 27 and 28. They were all amazed. 
So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Again, the crowd that sees and hears all that's going on is struck with amazement. They're astonished at what Jesus is doing. They're amazed. They see his authority. They see that it's shown through his words. He just commands unclean spirits and they do what he says. They obey his voice. That's amazing. And they see it and they take it in and then they just start spreading the news. News spreads fast. It's natural for those who are astonished and amazed to start talking about who or what astonishes them. What brings them awe and amazement is something that they want to talk about, something that they want to spread. News spreads all over the place. And Jesus, he moves on his kingdom ministry. He doesn't stay in the synagogue, but he visits one of the disciples' house. Verse 29 says, Immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. All right, so he goes into this house. Someone's sick there. They have a fever, and for us, we know what that means. If you have a fever, you're contagious. And so what we need to do with you is quarantine you. We're going to shut you off so that you don't spread your fever to everybody else, spread your sickness. We don't want anybody else to get sick. But that's not what Jesus does. Verse 31 And he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. Jesus doesn't accept if they had her in quarantine. He doesn't accept any sort of quarantine. He goes right to her. He meets her where she's at. He doesn't keep his distance from from Simon's mother-in-law. He goes to her. He takes her by the hand. Jesus meets her in her sickness, in her fever. He reaches right down into it and he pulls her up out of it without getting sick himself. And so before Jesus enters, she lays ill with a fever. That's all we're told. But after he grabs her by the hand and pulls her up, she gets up and she starts serving. Speaks of the totality of the power of Jesus, of his authority to heal. And I think this is a miniature glimpse into the kingdom of God, into the work of the kingdom of God. It meets those who are immobilized. It meets those who cannot do anything, can't lift a finger to help themselves. It meets them where they are, and it starts to turn them around. It turns them into joyful servants of the king. That's the work of the kingdom. That's kingdom authority. All Simon's mother-in-law does here is lay ill. That's her role. And Jesus takes care of the rest. This kingdom power, this kingdom authority in Jesus is displayed in that she does nothing and he takes care of everything. Jesus doesn't need people to have great faith in order to heal them. He doesn't need them to cooperate in order to heal them. They can lay ill with a fever and he can walk in and pull them out of it if he wants. That's the authority of the king. He just needs them to be sick in order to heal Again, Mark does some interesting writing here because he gives us so little detail. He doesn't say much about the fever. He doesn't build up the fever as something great. She just has a fever. Maybe it was life-threatening. Maybe it wasn't. He doesn't give us that. What is he doing? He's making us focus not on the fever, not on this woman. He's making us focus again on the king. He's making us focus in on the person and work of Jesus. And what Jesus does is he goes and he just ferociously dismantles this fever. And then he tenderly scoops down and takes someone by the hand and pulls her up. At every turn, 
everything he does, I think we're meant to respond the way the crowds responded. They're astonished. They're amazed. They're saying, what is this? What kind of person could do this? Who can command demons? Who can make fevers flee? And Mark is saying, I think, to say, behold the Son of God. That's who's doing it. I wonder if we're struck with the same amazement at the authority and the power of the working of Jesus. Does it make us wonder, who is this? What is this? What is happening here? My suggestion is, if we're not struck with amazement and wonder, is to look again and again and again and again until we are. Here's Jesus coming, healing, using his words, commanding things. He shows his authority and his power. They were astonished. And the news traveled fast. And by the end of the Sabbath, he has a whole crowd coming to him. If you look in verse 32... That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. The whole city. Here's a snapshot of Jesus' setting. In Capernaum, there were many that were sick. There were many that were possessed by demons. They were oppressed people. It seems as if, like the context seems to suggest, it's like it's as if the whole city is there. There's not one of them that's left untouched by the fall. They're all in sickness or they're oppressed by demons. So many, it seems, that there is not one person in all the city that wasn't at the door. Every single person is affected. Sickness and oppression and intrigue has brought them all to the door where Jesus was. And Jesus helps them. Verse 34 says that he healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons. He helps them. He goes to work. He starts exerting and extending his authority, healing and exercising demons, casting them out. And Mark reports it as if it's as common as as walking and talking. It's like, yeah, they came and he just started healing, exercising, throwing, casting out demons, healing diseases. Lots of people were there. Various diseases, many demons, no match for the Son of God. We're reminded, again, that the kingdom of God, there's, there's rebels to the kingdom, but there are no rivals. Jesus' authority is on full display, and it comes off as easy as walking and talking. He even extends his authority a little bit further in verse 34. Remember, he's casting out demons, and here's what he does. And just cast them out, like he gives them, like, here's what you do when you cast, get cast out. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, that is really interesting. Verse 35 kind of corresponds with this when he casts that demon out in verse 25 and he says, be silent. And both in verse 25 and in verse 34, they were told to be silent because it says they knew who Jesus was. They know him. Now, why does Jesus do this? And you may not have gone to Sunday school for your whole life, but like that seems off, right? Like, aren't we supposed to know who Jesus is? Don't we want people to know who Jesus is? Aren't we supposed to say who Jesus is? And so why in the world, when people who know who he is, even more clearly than the crowds know who he is, why in the world would Jesus silent them? Isn't this why Mark even wrote a gospel? So that we know the person of Jesus. So that we, readers, all readers, could know who Jesus is. The answer is yes. Jesus wants us to know who he is. He wants everybody to know who he is. But he doesn't want anybody to know who he is wrongly. Demons are going to take this information of who Jesus is, knowing it rightly, and will likely probably not say it the right way. They're demons. They're in an opposing kingdom. They're going to distort this information likely. 
or the people. Let's say they think that they know who Jesus is. There's a good chance, a high like probability that the people would, if they knew who he was a little bit, would probably get it wrong because just like the demons, they don't have the full picture yet. And Jesus wants to wait until he gives them the full picture before it starts spreading around who he is. I think one commentator sums it up helpfully in kind of three reasons that I'll read for you. He says that Jesus doubtlessly uses the command to silence to protect himself from false messianic expectations. At this time, you you realize that they're oppressed, they're ruled over by another kingdom. And so if someone who is a Jew comes along and starts saying, I'm the Messiah, what they're going to think is something different than what Jesus is going to be and is. They're going to think Jesus is going to rise up, he's going to take the military, and he's going to smash our Roman overlords. Jesus didn't come to quite do that. So he's protecting against that, some false expectations. Perhaps he's protecting from an earlier death as well. If you start coming to a kingdom and you start rivaling this kingdom, saying, I'm the king, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to raise up, and we're going to... then other kingdoms that are over you don't like that. It doesn't take long for them to want to smash you out. John the Baptist, he starts talking to this kingdom and saying, telling them to do things. You need to repent. You shouldn't have your your brother's wife. And they put him out. Jesus might be protecting a little bit from an earlier death. But his life, his work, and his works to define himself as a Messiah were not finished yet. He wants them to know him as he presents himself, as he teaches, as he displays his life. He doesn't want the world to fill in these expectations. He wants to fill in these expectations. The second reason is that he knew that faith could not be coerced by a spectacle. Saving knowledge needed to come through experience of Jesus himself, not alone through proper formulas and titles or reports of astounding deeds. In other words, Jesus wants people to know him, not just the surrounding spectacle. He doesn't want them to come see the show. He wants them to come see him. John talked about signs in his gospel. What are signs? They're not an end in themselves. If you're going to Disneyland and you just go to the sign and you take a picture and say, we made it, you're missing out on Disneyland. Right? It's not an end in itself. And Jesus doesn't want them to come see the healings and the spectacle of the, that he's doing, his authority on display, without seeing him. And so he silences them. And the third one is to teach that until the cross... Jesus cannot be rightly known for who he is. After the cross, you don't see any of this silencing at all. Go, tell it on the mountain, this is who Jesus is. And even the Roman centurion says that this is the Son of God. That's when it's let loose, because now we can see Jesus' life and his work and his death, and then we can start understanding who Jesus is and what kind of Messiah he came to be, what kind of king he came to be, what kind of kingdom he came to present, what kind of kingdom he came to establish. You see, at this time, the, the demons and people, they couldn't and, fully, couldn't and didn't fully grasp the meaning of what they were saying until they see the cross and the resurrection. And so Jesus silences them. And I think those three reasons are helpful. Jesus wants his life, his words, his works, including his death and resurrection, to fill out what people think of him. He wants those things to fill in his identity. And so he keeps it a little bit obscure until we can see more of the picture. That people had the wrong expectations and misunderstandings about Jesus is obvious. And it's not obvious from afar. It's obvious to those who are even closest to him. We see this. That after this authoritative teaching and healing all day, he goes away and his disciples are going to confuse what's happening. So he teaches and he heals all day, which would be a humanly exhausting day. And what does he do at the end of the day? He leaves. 
Verse 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. So after this day of crowds and people, the introverts get to rejoice like Jesus went out by himself. He was alone. He got away from it all. But again, notice the details that Mark is putting out there. He went out while it was very early. Could have said that, but he didn't stop there. Very early, it was also very dark. It was still dark outside. He's going out of his way to show us that Jesus got alone with his Father to pray. And he does it in one verse. And he doesn't give us any more. We don't get the content of Jesus' prayer. Did he do ACTS? Did he do the Shema a couple times and say, Hero Israel, like... Does he go through the, the Lord's Prayer? Does he start with our Father in it? We don't get any of that. What we get is that he went alone to pray. He practices solitude. He prays. How profound. The Son of God prays. How simple, how profound, how needed for us to see in our day. Uh, perhaps solitude and prayer sounds to us as something scary or even unappealing, or both. Like getting alone with God, having some prayer and solitude exposes us. It exposes us before God. It exposes our faith or lack of faith. And so what we often do there is that we find a distraction. We turn on some praise music. We listen to a podcast. We pick up a book. We find a distraction because we don't like being exposed. One author says this, The distractions give us easy escape from the silence and solitude, whereby we become acquainted with our finitude, our inescapable mortality, and the distance of God from all our desires, hopes, and pleasures. Yeah, there are times when we find getting alone to pray to the Father unappealing or scary And what distractions do is that they can cultivate us slowly in ways that are detrimental to deep relationship with our Father. And so we insert distractions and they actually can cultivate us away from our Father. Often we'd rather be in a crowd doing kingdom work than alone with God. We'd rather see the healings and be a part of the healings and the exorcisms than being alone with God. And Jesus came to fix that. Jesus withdraws from all the distractions to be alone with his Father. That we might know the way. That we might see the way. Jesus calls us to follow him, and he leads us straight to prayer with our Father. He leads us right into solitude, that we might go after him. Hey, we need these times. We need times alone with the Father in prayer, free of distraction. We need it to expose us and the lack of depth and relationship that we have with our Father. We need it to expose how our desires and going out to be with Him alone don't line up so that we might grow, so that we might follow after Jesus. We need to get up early or stay up late so that we can be alone with the Father because we need it. But honestly, all I've ever heard from this text is Jesus did this, so you go do it too. And we just get this beat down on prayer. Uh, Jesus went alone to be with his father. He got up early, so you guys go do it too. He's our example. Are you too busy? Well, Jesus was really busy. 
He's healing the whole city. He has the most important work to do. And he still did it. You're not too busy. Or, you too exhausted. I'm so sorry you're so tired. I don't know if, if healing everybody all day is tiring, but I think it would be. And Jesus, probably exhausted, after this long day, goes out early, skips on some sleep to pray. Because it was that important to him. And he's our example. He does it, so we should too. You're not too busy. You're not too tired. It's that important. <clears throat> all that's true. And that will preach all day long. And you will leave and you'll be like, oh my goodness, what conviction, what a great sermon. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post that so people will listen to that. But I think if this only beats us down with prayer, that I think we miss the beauty. Amen. And here's the beauty. Jesus is being a son. He's being the son. And Mark is trying to point readers to the person of Jesus. He doesn't give us the content of his prayer. He doesn't give us how long he was out there. He doesn't give us any of that. He wants us to see Jesus. He wants us to look at him as the Son of God. This is what sons look like. Jesus isn't just showing us something about prayer and solitude. He's showing us something about being a son. This is what sonship looks like. In one sense, he isn't setting an example at all. He's doing what he loves to do, what he's always loved to do. He's being with his father. He's being a son. He's showing the depth of their relationship. He's showing his love for his father and receiving love from the father. He's showing communion. And he's saying, this has always been this way. Breaking away from all this other stuff is the most natural thing in the world with him. He's been doing it for eternity. He's with his father. He loves his father. His father loves him. He's doing something completely natural to him. And his perfect sonship is what it's doing is it's making a way for us to all be sons. To know the father the way he knows the father. To not find solitude in prayer with the Father unappealing or scary anymore. He goes there. He wants to. This is what he wants. Jesus is the way. And we follow him. We follow his example because he makes us sons. He can be the good shepherd in our lives because he's gone to green pastures and still waters. He can lead us there. He's been there. He's taking us there. And so it's not just about Jesus giving us an example to follow and giving us this beat down in prayer. I don't think we should apply it the same way. We don't apply healing and exorcism that way. We don't say, well, Jesus set an example here, so we should go do the exact same thing he did. And yet then right here, right after that, we'll say, well, Jesus went alone to be, be alone with his Father and pray, and so you go do that too. We're showing inconsistencies. Now we look at the Scripture. What Jesus is doing is he's showing us the authority of the power of him being the king in the kingdom. He's doing it in his healing and his teaching and his exercising demons, and he's doing it in his prayer as well. He's not just giving us a beat down on prayer. Saying, this is what kingdom authority looks like. This is what it looks like to be in the kingdom. Mark has shown us much in chapter 1 and will show us much about kingdom working. Teaching, healing, exercising demons. But the kingdom is more than that. It isn't just about doing. It is also about living. There is kingdom living. Or another way to say it, I think, is kingdom being. Jesus isn't doing here. He is being. That's what he's doing in verse 35. He's just being. Verse 31 or verse 20, 21 through 34, that's kingdom doing. Verse 35, kingdom living, kingdom being. Verse 35 is life under the good reign and rule of God that includes deep relationship with God as king, as a son. And that's what Jesus is showing us. He's showing us life under the Father as a son. And it just doesn't compute, does it? 
well, we don't even know what to make with this. So we have to say, well, like, well, I guess it's an example and we should go be alone and pray. And you should. It doesn't compute. We don't know how to do with it. And neither did the first disciples. Verse 35, that was confusing to them. Jesus' actions here, this is weird. Simon, he says it. Those who were with him, they started searching for him, looking all over for him. As if being alone with his father wasn't the most natural thing to him. They're like, what is, where is he at? And they found him, and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. They don't come up and say to him, like, hey, we missed you. We really like being in your presence. You're, this, you're the son of God. Could you teach us, talk to us, let us talk to you? He doesn't do that. None of that. There's a tone of rebuke in what he says. Uh, everyone's looking for you. Where you been? Stuff to do. Jesus, you, you, you got to be confused. Uh, the crowd is ready. It's our moment. Let's capitalize on this. All right, everybody came to our door. You were doing amazing things. Like, get some rest and let's go back to work. Like, this is awesome. Let's move this thing forward. He's doing what would be normal in the kingdom of the world. We're doing is always better than being. It's more productive, more impactful. He's doing what, in a culture of hurry, crowds, distractions like ours would want to do. Let's get back to work. Let's start strategizing to start scaling your ministry, Jesus. Let's start making this, spectac- this, this spectacle a little bit bigger. Like, let's think about how we can make this production a little bit better and more appealing to more people. Or, let's, let's take this tour on the road. Like, let's go show this to everybody. But this is the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, prayer and solitude are just as strategic just as vital, just as necessary. We need to be okay if we're going to be a part of the kingdom of God with less crowds in order to pray, less productivity in order to be with our Father, less of a production and a spectacle in order that we might get God. Kingdom living, kingdom being is just as important as kingdom doing. You really don't have one without the other. And Jesus shows us that. He's a son. He's showing his authority, the authority of the king, the authority of the kingdom. And he heals and he prays. But the disciples don't see it. Solitude and prayer, they don't seem strategic. They don't seem impactful. There's no flair. There's no results. Not that we see right now. Everyone is looking for you. They'll all notice you and what you're doing. Come back. And what the disciples are doing there is they're putting voice and actions to where we are most of the time. Like, you want to find yourself in the story? There it is. Everyone's looking for you, Jesus. That's me in the story. We've got success. We've got everything on our side. Let's go take advantage of it. Let's capture this moment and let's roll. Jesus goes to pray. And I find myself thinking, that's not a good strategy. That's not impactful. We seek the things that we think are strategic and impactful that draw crowds. But we need to be okay with withdrawing from success, crowds, noise, hurry, all those things so that we can be with our Father. 
we don't know or we often forget that the greatest part about being in the kingdom is that we're sons of the king. That we have a father. And we love this one. That the most appealing thing in the world is that we just we get to be with the father. And if that's the real reward, then prayer and solitude is strategic. If the reward is I get to be with the Father, then being alone with Him is really strategic. It's really impactful. It's indeed vital. Jesus knows this, and so He goes to be with His Father to pray. And they come and rebuke Him in a sense. Everyone's looking for you. And if I were Jesus, I know what I would do. Like, are you kidding me? But he doesn't. He says to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The disciples come to him with a tone of rebuke, thinking, Hey, Jesus, your vision is too small here. Crowds are waiting. Don't be by yourself. You need to get this ministry going. Your vision is much too small. Turns out, their vision is too small. Their vision of the kingdom is too small. That it doesn't include time with the Father alone. Their vision of the kingdom is too small. And that they're thinking, hey, there's a crowd in in Capernaum. Let's go take advantage of that. Jesus says, no, I've got all sorts of towns we've got to go to. Their vision of the kingdom is much too small because it's all about crowds, healings, exorcisms up to this point. That's good, but too small. Kingdom vision is vision that includes prayer and solitude. If we lack kingdom vision, a vision of what this kingdom power and authority is, then we're going to exclude prayer and solitude. That's too small. We're going to exclude genuine sonship. But if our view of the kingdom and the king is right, then we would never exclude kingdom being, kingdom living as sons. We would always include that as strategic and important. And we'd say that is what the kingdom is. But Jesus isn't avoiding widespread ministry. (laughs) He isn't avoiding the spread of this thing all over the place. He's going to do that. He goes to pray in order to do that. That is part of the work too. Work in the kingdom didn't stop when the crowds stopped being healed. The kingdom kept going. The kingdom was ongoing and Jesus goes out to pray in order that we might go preach in other towns as well. It seems as if Jesus takes this on as a necessity for all the rest of his work, for all that he's doing. He isn't avoiding it. His vision, though, isn't just about a crowd in Capernaum. It's about much, much more than that. He came to preach. He came to pray. He came to heal. He came to be the Son of God. Verse 21, 39, this is what kingdom authority looks like. It's kingdom working, healing, exorcisms, It's kingdom living, prayer alone with the Father. And as both are displayed in Jesus, may we be left with the same astonishment that the crowd had. May we be left with that question in our minds, what is this? That he could go and he could command demons, but that he would also go be with his Father. What is this? May that astonish us. Would you bow in prayer with me?